0: We live in an anxious and alarmed world. For good reason. (laughs) Have you seen the gas prices? Have you noticed the inflation? Have you noticed that the actions of one nation almost halfway around the world affects the global market and everybody? Have you noticed that there is always a threat of nuclear war? And especially now. And have you noticed that there is a growing hostility in our culture toward Christianity. We have lots of reasons to be anxious and alarmed, especially when we look at the world. That's because Babylon, which in Daniel's case is a picture of the world for us, because Daniel is removed from his home in Israel and is now living as an exile in Babylon. We are exiles in this world awaiting for the kingdom of God. Um, Babylon is a kingdom ruled by anxiety and alarm. It keeps us on constant alert for what's going to happen next and fear. Um, We see this in the book of Daniel. Actually, I didn't notice until looking at chapter seven, that this is quite a theme in this book. So if you look at Daniel chapter two, you'll notice that in verse one, King Nebuchadnezzar had the dream of the statue of gold, uh, silver, bronze, and iron and clay. the the statue, and he was alarmed by the dream. And so in Daniel 2 verse 1, we see that Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. This vision that Nebuchadnezzar had was so intense, he couldn't sleep anymore. Then in chapter 4, we saw that Nebuchadnezzar had another dream. And in verse 5, it says, I saw a dream that made me afraid. And as I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. Daniel chapter 5. Belshazzar saw the finger of God writing on the wall while they're drinking out of the cups of the temple. And in chapter 5, verse 6, we read that the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him and his limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. Or if uh, I understand properly, the scholars say that his um, his body became untied, his bowels were loosed, <laughs> and in Daniel chapter six, Darius um, was alarmed when he was when he recognized that his leadership tricked him into getting Daniel to be thrown into the lion's den, and we read in Daniel six verse fourteen. Then the king, Darius, when he heard these words, was much distressed and, his, and set his mind to deliver Daniel. Then in verse 16, um, no, no, verse 18, then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and sleep fled from him. Then in verse 20, as he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. You see this theme of in Babylon, no one's at peace. No one's at rest. People are constantly alarmed, anxious, losing sleep. This is the world that we live in. And unfortunately, brothers and sisters, Christians are not immune to these experiences. Because we do live in Babylon. Sometimes our eyes get too fixated on Babylon. But look at Daniel in chapter 7, verse 15. After he sees the vision, which we will look at in a moment, Daniel 7.15 says, As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. And then in 7 verse 28, Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed. Daniel was emotionally distraught over what he had seen. So what did Daniel see? Babylon leaves us feeling out of control. We look at the world and we say, there's nothing I can do about it. And unfortunately, what often we do is we just sit there and ingest as much information about it as we can. And what this does is it creates an anxiety loop. We're anxious about it, so we got to learn more about it, and then we get more anxious the more we learn about it. And this is the Babylonian system to keep us trapped in this constant state of high alert and angst. But the good news that we see in Daniel 7 and 8 is that the kingdom of God has a different solution for us. That when we understand what the kingdom of God is, and that there is a king ruling the kingdom of God right now, that it's not vac- that's not vacant... That we have a role to play. There is something we can do about our anxiety and our alarm. We have something to do. The kingdom of God gives us a role to play. And we get to, right now, practice what's coming in the kingdom of God. We're here to practice becoming rulers with Christ in the kingdom of God. That's a loaded statement. We'll unpack that. So, let's look at Daniel's two visions. Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 8. Now, Daniel chapter 7, um, this is in short, we're gonna see, uh, there are empires, they're, they're shown as beasts, they're set, they're thrown down, uh, the Son of Man appears, receives their dominion to rule a different kingdom that lasts forever, and then we see the Babylonian response to the Son of Man. It's not one of celebration or joy. And then in chapter 8, we're going to see the conquest of Alexander the Great and the aftermath of his conquest. Actually, in chapter 8, and we're going to spend very little time in it, chapter 8 is so clear. All my commentaries, for once, agreed on what it meant It made it very easy. Um, It's about Alexander the Great. And in fact, it was so clear to the Jews And Alexander himself, that the story is by Josephus, a Jewish historian who worked for the Roman Empire, he records a story in which when when Alexander the Great came to Jerusalem to destroy it, the priest came out with a copy of Daniel and showed him chapter 8. And Daniel was so convinced that it was a prophecy of himself that he asked the Jews, what do you want? I will give you gifts. He gave them gifts and he left Jerusalem intact and moved on. That's cool. That's wild. Daniel chapter 8 is pretty clear, at least as clear as prophecy can get. (laughs) Um, Okay, but let's look now at chapter 7. So, oh, and one more thing. In short, um, what these visions show us is that the rule of empires, the power of empires, is backed by demonic beings. That's what these visions show. There are demonic beings behind the empires that animate them. And second, that the spirit of Babylon is the spirit of Antichrist. That Babylon is against Christ. And that the spirit is then transferred from one empire to the next. It just keeps going until you get to the ultimate end of time. So Daniel chapter 7. This is what Daniel sees. 7 verse 1. I love this. This vision just stirs my imagination in so many directions. So I'm going to try to keep this, you know, as timely as possible. <laughs> in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, by the way, this is about 14 years before chapter 5, which is where Belshazzar is feasting when the Persians are surrounding him and the kingdom falls. You remember that? This is 14 years before that. So Daniel had a vision of Babylon's fall. Okay, so in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared. So here's his journal. I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then I looked, as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man and the mind of a man was given to it. And verse five, behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth and between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. And after this, I looked and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns. And behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. That's what Daniel sees. Then the scene shifts. It's terrifying, these four dreadful beasts where the wild things are right (laughs) now Daniel in verse 9 the scene shifts as I looked thrones notice this plural they'll come back thrones were placed and the Ancient of days took his seat his clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool his throne was fiery flames and its wheels were burning fire A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousands times ten thousands stood before him. And the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. And I looked then, because of the sound of the great words, that the horn was speaking. Remember, the fourth beast had the horn, and the horn is speaking. It's just jabbering off. And I looked and the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, the first three, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Then it seems perhaps the scene shifts one more time in verse 13. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, There came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. By the way, that triad, peoples, nations, and languages has been used throughout the book. Remember when Nebuchadnezzar said everyone worship this, this image? Uh, he used the phrase, all nations, peoples, and languages. And same, I don't remember where else now, but it's it re, that's the refrain when it talks about the whole world. That's So now, what Babylon thought it had, all peoples, nations, and languages, now this son of man has the peoples, nations, and languages. And his dominion, middle verse 14, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed well in reaction to this that's where Daniel says my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me Mm -hmm. so now he's going to approach one of these angelic beings that's in the courtroom the court scene we have and he approaches in verse 16, one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he, the being, told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. Verse 17, these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom of Forever, amen. forever and ever. Amen, amen. That, by the way, contrasts times. Uh, well, it'll come up later. We'll see it. Um, it's escaping me. Okay, uh, verse nineteen. So then, the Daniel says, "Okay." So now we know the four beasts are four kingdoms. What are these four kingdoms? Um, most most agree that they are the ba- the lion is the Babylonian Empire. The bear is the Persian Empire, also the Medes. They were kind of a combined empire. The leopard is Alexander the Great, the Greeks. That's why he was quick. And the four wings and the four heads, because Alexander dies and four generals take over his empire. Um, And then the last beast, notice that it's not named. The first is like a lion. The second is like a bear. The third is like a leopard. The fourth is given no description other than that it was the most terrifying. It's a mongrel, in other words. It's this mixture, and we don't know. Daniel doesn't know how to identify it. He doesn't even try to identify it. He just adds, oh, and it had horns. It had horns. Now, this fourth one is believed to be the Roman Empire, Um, These four kingdoms mirror the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in chapter two. He had the dream of the image in which an image of a man in which the head was gold. That was Babylon. The the chest and arms were silver. That was the Persian Empire. And then the, the midsection and the thighs were bronze. That was the Greek. And then the legs and feet were iron with the feet mixed with clay. That was the Roman Empire. And so, a stone came, a big rock was hewed, and it crushed this image, and Nebuchadnezzar was disturbed and lost sleep, right? And he demanded that someone and tell him the Jamin interpret it, lest he rip every one of his magicians limb from limb. Remember that? Nebuchadnezzar was a very impulsive guy. Um, so... This dream Nebuchadnezzar had is now essentially what Daniel's seeing in expanded form. The four beasts are the four parts of that image. But instead of a stone breaking the image, now there's this son of man and the ancient of days who cast down the beasts. They defeat the beasts and give the kingdom over to the saints of the Most High. Um, This mongrel, this fourth beast, is by far the worst. We're going to get a lot of explanation on him starting in verse 19. Um, And by the way, Revelation verse 13, whom people usually call the Antichrist, although that word is not in Revelation at all, uh, the beast comes out of the sea, just like we see here in Daniel. And that beast is described as being a mixture of lion, bear, and leopard. So this fourth beast is really the most fearsome parts of the prior ones. This is the empire of empires. Um, I want to point out one more thing. Um, You notice that we went like a lion, like a bear, like a leopard. But then when we come to the son of man, Daniel doesn't know who it is. He just says one like a son of man. See, the the three empires plus the mongrel, so those four, they're beasts. These empires are dehumanizing. And it gets worse and worse until it's more monster-like. But then finally Daniel sees someone else. And this one is human. This one, oh, safety. This one is like a son of man. I don't know how else to describe him except he's like a person. Just like these are like beasts. And so finally a humanized, if you will, a more humane kingdom is appearing. Okay, so um, verse 19 so he saw the four beasts. They were described as four kingdoms. Now verse 19, he's going to want to know about the fourth beast. So then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with his teeth of iron and claws of bronze, in which devoured and broke to pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the 10 horns, which corresponds to the 10 toes of Nebuchadnezzar's dream about the image of a man. Um and about the 10 horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell and the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions so not only is there this terrifying beast but this horn is really powerful within this terrifying powerful beast And so as I looked, verse 21, the horn, this great boastful speaking, spewing out words horn, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the ancient of days came and judgment was given for the saints of the most high. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus, he said, as for the fourth beast, so now we're going to learn about this kingdom. There shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, of course, the Roman Empire did that, right? Conquered everything known except for the eastern part of the world, which she just wasn't really on the radar in this time. Um uh, so they broke it to pieces. Verse 24 As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them, and he shall be different from the former ones, and should put down three kings. So that's that obnoxious, loud, boastful horn. Verse 25 He shall speak the horn shall speak words against the Most High, and he shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times and half a time. There you go. That's what I was trying to Uh, The time, times, and half a time mirrors what we saw in 7 verse 14. His kingdom is one... Where did I read that? Oh, verse 18. Um, and they shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. That is contrasting time, times, and half a time. So what does that mean? Um, times, times, and half a time. Generally, it's said that that describes three and a half. So you have time one times two. So that's three together. And then um, half a time would be half. So then you got three and a half Three and a half is significant because it's halfway to seven. Why is seven significant? Because seven represents completion of time. God created the heavens and the earth in seven days. Israel is to keep a Sabbath year every seventh year. And every seven sets of seven years, Israel is to have the year of jubilee. Seven marks the completion of time. So if you have three and a half, what you have is incomplete time. What you have is, in other words, temporary time. So the phrase is meant to communicate that this fourth beast and his horn are going to wreak havoc, but it will have a clock on it. There will be a two minute warning and he will have to get his act together. Um, so then in verse 26, but the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Did you hear that? These beasts have dominion over the world. God takes their dominion and judgment and hands it to the people of the saints of the Most High. Let me just be really clear. That's you. You are the people of God and we will be given Dominion. You'll see this. We will we will cover that, but that's very clear in Revelation. Um and the, uh, we, and the, uh, shall be given to the saints of the Most High. Last part of 27. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. Then Daniel says, Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. So in other words, Daniel's terrified, but he doesn't go on social media spreading more fear to everybody about conspiracy theories and about things that they've read online. Daniel keeps the matter in his heart. So he has a different way of conducting himself than Babylon does. Chapter 8. This is how chapter 8 goes. In verses 1 through 4, there's a ram with two horns. They're imbalanced. One's longer than the other. That's because the ram is the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire is made up of the Persians and the Medes. The Persians were stronger, which is why we just for short call it the Persian Empire. So the longer horn's the Persians, the shorter horn is the Medes. Um, and they... This, this ram charges and takes down everyone and controls the world. Then there's a goat that shows up in verse 5. And this goat has, as the ESV says, a conspicuous horn. That means it's a really obtrusive, really massive horn. It's like the most prominent thing about this goat. So here's this little billy goat going around with this massive horn. And he rams into the ram, to be redundant. <laughs> he kills the ram and the ram dies. So now the goat takes charge. The goat is the Greek Empire. The horn is Alexander the Great. And then... um, The horn, though, in the process is broken. And the horn is then replaced by four other horns, like the leopard had four heads and four wings. So these are the four sections that Alexander's empire was divided into. And out of these four horns, one little horn rises up, just like we saw in chapter 7, and he makes great boasts. It says he casts down the stars of heaven and tramples the temple of God. The stars of heaven probably depict the people of God because um, Abraham was told, so shall your descendants be like the stars of heaven. So it's it's prophetic talk. I just made up a word. Prophetic talk about um, the people of God. Yeah, prophetic. There's a better word. Uh, wow. Okay. That little horn, historically, was um, a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes the fourth. You can read about this in the book of Maccabees, which is a historical document, just not an inspired document. It's really fascinating, actually. And he basically wrecks havoc on the temple. And he sets up altars to Zeus And um, the Jews cannot be circumcised They cannot keep the law And people are killed for doing so And it was a terrible, terrible great persecution He becomes this foreshadow Again, remember the spirit of Antichrist Is in all the empires So the empires are animated and empowered By demonic forces Um, And so he Is partnering with the devil To get all this done In fact, Daniel 8 says that his power Does not come from himself And then Daniel um, gets an interpretation from Gabriel, and Gabriel basically explains what I'm saying just without saying it as clearly as I'm saying. And um, the little horn eventually is broken and dies. Why? Because all the kingdoms of this world only rule for a time, times, and half a time. They are not the one that goes forever and ever and ever. That's only the kingdom of God. So Daniel's alarmed by all this, But in some way, we get to look at this and find great comfort because we have the benefit of looking backward while Daniel's looking forward. Daniel doesn't quite understand what he's seeing, but we have the benefit of now sitting where we are as Christians. We can look at that and say, oh, that makes a lot more sense. And this is comforting for us. So we need to put on our Christian glasses to look at this prophecy and understand how this should undo our Babylonian alarm and anxiety. So in contrast to the terror of these dehumanizing beasts, Daniel sees one like a son of man who receives eternal dominion. So I want to emphasize most of our time right now on verses 13 and 14 of chapter 7 because these these verses are huge. They're just in purple in my Bible. I just write things, I color things, and this one's just purple, because it's just, look at me. <laughs> it's an important one. Um, okay, so this, what we see here is, in verse 13, Daniel says that he sees one like a son of man, and then it says that he was, in verse 14, he was given dominion. Now, these two words by themselves should trigger in our minds another story in the Bible. Son of man, dominion. Um, Oh, Genesis 1. God created humanity in his image and he gave them dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and the beasts of the earth. Um, Then you start looking at this and you go, wait a minute. There's a lot more imagery from Genesis 1 here. Genesis 1, verse 2, begins with darkness. Daniel says that these were the visions of the night. And then the earth is covered in water. Daniel sees that the seas are being agitated. And we then read that the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the waters. Here in Daniel, we read that the winds were stirring up the waters. Now, that does connect because the, the word in Hebrew for spirit and the Hebrew translation of this Daniel chapter 7, because it was originally in Aramaic, but that's another thing. Um, it's the same word, Ruach. The ruach of God hovered over the waters in Genesis, and then the ruach stirred up the seas in Genesis uh, in Daniel chapter seven. So right here we have the beginning scene of the Bible, but rather than dry land coming up and, and blossoming with vegetation and um, and then animals being put on this land, we see instead monstrous, hideous de- deformations of creation, decreations of creation arising out of the water. This is a perverted story of Genesis 1 because this is the story driven by the demonic powers. Um, the beast also makes a hint toward um, the fifth day of creation when there's just this like intriguing line dropped. Genesis 1 verse 21 says, and God also made the great sea creatures. Moving on. Well, here we have the great sea creatures. Psalm 104 talks about God put the sea creatures there. Leviathan he made to play with, Psalm 104 says. So these great sea creatures are no problem to God, but here humanity has allowed them to spiral out of control because um, I'm getting ahead of myself, Um, but God originally gave us, Dominion over all things, including the sea creatures. He gave us command to co-rule with him over his kingdom. This is reflected in Psalm chapter 8, verse 4 through 8. This is going to come up. This is going to be very important. You might want to note it or look it up even now and keep your finger there. But Psalm 8, verse 4 says this. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man, that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, than angels. And you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, The birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Are you picking up all those connections? We have beasts, we have seas, we have son of man, we have dominion. Psalm 8 is celebrating what God created us to be. His image bearers that have dominion over his kingdom, ruling with him. But we lost this dominion. Because as in Daniel 7, one of the beasts has his horn. So there's this 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 talking beast. Comes uh, So in Genesis chapter 3, we have a talking beast come. And the serpent deceives Adam and Eve. And what they do in disobeying God and obeying the serpent instead is they transfer the dominion that God gave to humanity. They transfer, I, I should say we, we transfer that dominion over to the devil. And so now the serpent, the beasts, are the ones that have dominion over over the earth and we, are, we see this reflected in our lives every day um, we no longer exercise well we don't exercise the meaning of a creation you don't see me walking on water like Jesus did you don't see me setting out my fishing line and I want 50 fish to bite this one Jesus can do that um, we don't see me riding an unbroken donkey into a noisy crowd Jesus does that I don't have the ability to cast out diseases so that Stacy can be with us tonight I don't have these abilities. I don't have dominion over creation because we've given that over to the dark powers. And so what we see as a result is that the creation has dominion over us. We are subjected to famine, to fire season, to lack of rain. We're subjected to crops failing, to getting a broken leg, or a cold, or a coronavirus. We are dominated by the creation. The whole intention has been flipped. And in Daniel 7, we see that. It's the beasts. These beastly monsters have dominion over the human race. It's This is why Daniel is so terrified, because he gets a stark picture of the world we live in, and why we experience anxiety and alarm. We are dominated by the beasts. But one more figure shows up and it's not like a beast. It's like a son of man. And the son of man defeats the beasts and receives an eternal kingdom. Now, son of man indicates that this figure is human. He's like a son of man. But the figure also is clearly equated with Yahweh God. If you look at 7 verse 9, I looked and thrones, plural, were placed. Thrones. Okay, you could say that all of this divine council, these divine beings around Yahweh are sitting on the thrones and that's what it's referring to. But the only person seated in this scene is the Ancient of Days. The others are standing or around him. In fact, it said later that they were, um, they stood before him. The thousands stood before him. So there are thrones, but only one is seated, which is implying that someone else will get to sit on the throne with Yahweh. Also, we see in verse 13 that the Son of Man comes with the clouds of heaven. This is a very clear depiction of Yahweh who always appeared to his people or often appeared to his people in the form of a cloud. Who let, How did he lead them through the wilderness? pillar of cloud. How did he descend upon the tabernacle when it was consecrated to him? In the cloud that filled the tabernacle. When Solomon dedicated the temple, the cloud filled the temple so that no one could even enter the outer courts. When Jesus was on Mount Transfiguration, I don't remember the mountain there, but you know, the Mount of Transfiguration, there the cloud came around him and said, this is my son. God manifests himself in the glory cloud. And here the Son of Man comes with the cloud. He is one with Yahweh. This is so evident to the Jews that in the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, so in those, in those couple centuries before Jesus comes, they, there's writings in which they talk about the Son of Man figure in Daniel 7. And there's a lot of ideas about who the Son of Man was, but they all agreed that this figure was somewhat human and somewhat divine with Yahweh. So much so that they came up with ideas like, well, he's a human who was divinized after his death. Like, maybe Moses. Or he was um, someone who was created out of the essence of Yahweh. Just a creature, but kind of like from his essence. Um, but then, believe it or not, there were some who actually wrote that this figure was co-eternal with Yahweh as a second hypostasis. That's theology language, for a second person of Yahweh. Some Jews were writing this before the New Testament. And this is what Christians believe. This is what we believe, that he is God from God, light from light, begotten, not made, as the Nicene Creed says. So we see that this figure is human divine. We now know who can fit such an image. Daniel sees, oh, by the way, uh, Christ Seals the deal. Because in the Gospels, all four Gospels, Jesus refers to himself as the boss, Son of Man. the Son of Man. More than 80 times. It is the primary title for Jesus in the Gospels. Why? Because Jesus is claiming that I am the figure who has received dominion from the Father and I will. Give it to you. This is what Jesus is claiming. So what we see here is that Daniel has a vision of the ascension of Christ. Someone tonight prayed actually thanking God for the ascension of Christ. And that was cool because usually we summarize the work of Jesus as he came, he died, he rose. We kind of usually forget the ascension part but it's actually a tremendous deal especially when you consider what Daniel's trying to portray to us is that the ascension of Christ is part of the gospel story I mean so what if he comes back from the dead it just means we'll all live forever but that doesn't mean that we will ever have dominion over creation again but that Christ ascended to the throne of God and received there from God dominion for the kingdom that is what the ascension is about And so Christ is our new Adam as the son of man. He's our new Adam. Old Adam gave dominion away. New Adam keeps the dominion. He receives it and he's going to give it away, not to the beasts or the serpents, but to the people of God, the sons and daughters of God. And the New Testament makes this clear. I mean, we could go crazy forever on this, but I'm going to limit us to four ways. The New Testament makes this very clear that Christ ascends to the Father to receive the kingdom in at least four ways so here's the first Um, based on Daniel 7 verse 13 with the clouds of heaven Christ ascends his ascension is described in the New Testament as being with the clouds of heaven you might remember this in Acts chapter 1 verse 6 so when the disciples came together this is the day of Jesus' ascension the 40 days after Easter So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're interested in the Daniel prophecy. But he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, it is not the time to give the kingdom to you guys, the saints. But you do have a role for the kingdom right now. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So in other words, Jesus is saying, when I receive the kingdom from my Father, when I receive dominion, you will know it because you will receive the Holy Spirit. And when he had said these things, Acts continues, when he had said these things, they were looking on, and he was lifted up, and a cloud A cloud took him out of their sight. That's not to say that Jesus was literally moving up into the stratosphere somewhere and then a cloud just happened to block their view and oh man, we don't know where he went. This is Bible language for connecting the reader of Acts to the prophecy of Daniel. Why would he say a cloud took him up? Because the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. What Luke is saying to us in Acts is that what happens at this moment when Jesus is lifted up, he then goes to the throne of the Ancient of Days and receives the kingdom. The second way the New Testament makes us clear that this is the ascension is that Hebrews identifies Christ as fulfilling Psalm 8. This is Hebrews chapter 2. Um Hebrews cites the passage we already read in Psalms 8. It cites this passage and then interprets it for us, which is so cool. Like the Bible giving us a sermon on itself. So Hebrews 2 verse 5 says this. It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. He's not giving dominion to the angels of which we are speaking because it has been testified somewhere, <laughs> Psalm 8, what is man that you're mindful of him? the son of man, that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, Hebrews comments, now in putting everything in subjection to him, um, I'm going to read for you the pronouns with their proper noun because the pronouns get confusing. So here's how it read. Um, now, putting everything in subjection to humanity, God left nothing outside humanity's control. That's Genesis 1 theology. He gave us dominion over the earth. But then Hebrews continues. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to humanity. Right? You're on board with that. You're like, yeah, Genesis is a nice theology, but we're not really relating to that? Exactly. Hebrews admits that. But what we do see is Christ, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, became human, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. What Hebrews is saying is, yeah, we haven't received the kingdom yet, but Christ has, and he will give it to us at his second coming. Ephesians number three, Ephesians also identifies Christ as fulfilling Psalm 8. Ephesians chapter 1. He will also quote Psalm 8. So Ephesians chapter 1 verse 19. This is an extraordinary passage. I ugh, Don't get sidetracked, Brandon. Um, but pray, This is the middle of a lengthy prayer Paul is giving. It's the last part of his prayer. So Paul prays that we would know. That's his prayer. I pray that you would know these things. The last of the things he wants us to know is this. Ephesians 1.19. That you would know what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe. What kind of power? What kind of immeasurable power is God giving to us? This is what he then says. So you know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. What Paul's saying is the immeasurable power that is at work in us is the same power that God used when he raised Christ from the dead. (gasps) That is fantastic power. Bless you, that was a power sneeze. (laughs) That is fantastic power. Now it's not only the power that he used when he raised Christ from the dead, but it's also the power that he used when he seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. He's seated next to the Ancient of Days. The thrones. He's there. He's seated. Now, how high is this throne? Oh, it's kind of between God and us. No, no, no. It's all the way up. This is how Paul describes it. Seated him in the heavenly places, far above all rule, far above all authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, including the Ancient of Days. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And God, now he cites Psalm 8 verse 6. And God put all things under his feet. Remember? The son of man in Psalm 8 will have all things under his feet. And God put all things under his feet and gave him as a head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Daniel 7 has happened. Christ has received the kingdom from the Father. Then, fourth way the New Testament says this, is that Daniel 7 is expanded on. This is my take. You will have hundreds of commentaries that won't say it this way, but this is how I read it, this is how I say it, so you can put an asterisk on this one. Heretic Brandon says. (laughs) Daniel 7 is expanded on in Revelation chapter 5 so you can go over to Revelation since you know Revelation is I mean, the last book of the Bible um, Revelation 5 is a glorious passage and I think that you'll agree that it's referring to the same event which would put Revelation 5 actually 40 days after Christ's resurrection is what I'm saying I know that's not exactly popular but that's that's where I'm convinced not to the point where I'd fight with anyone over it though You disagree? I'd be like, that's really cool because I'm about as certain on this as I am about how to explain astrophysics to a kindergartner. So chapter 5, verse 1, Revelation. Then I saw, John says, in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. That's a theme all through chapter 4. The word throne pops up a dozen times or so. Him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. This scroll in verse 1, I believe, contains the pronouncement in chapter 11, verse 15. So what is this scroll? You open up the scroll and read it. It says 11, verse 15. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. All of heaven is fixated on this scroll. What is it? The scroll, the scroll. Who can open the scroll? John begins to weep because nobody comes forward to open the scroll. It's a traumatic moment because we know that in this scroll, it's the proclamation of he who will receive dominion over the kingdoms of the world. That's what the scroll is. The one who can open it, in other words, is the one who will have dominion. So John's weeping, but then an angel comforts him and says, no, 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 hush, 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 hush. Verses verse 5. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that no one can open this, so that he, excuse me, can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw the shock of the, of the, of of history. He didn't see a terrifying majestic lion. He saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures Who, by the way, are contrasts to the four beasts, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That, by the way, sounds very similar to Daniel chapter 7. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Dominion is restored through the true Son of Man, the true new Adam. And the Lamb conquers. We don't see this in Daniel. We just see the beasts vanish and the Son of Man appears. But now we get a clear picture that the Son of Man conquers the beasts by becoming a Lamb who the beast sinks his teeth into and when the beast releases his jaws the teeth are stuck in the lamb and the beast's power is no more Hmm. and that's how the lamb conquers so Christ that's my whole argument (laughs) I got way too excited about this this is way deeper than usual but um, my concluding statement here for you is that Christ is the son of man which you probably were all like, we already got that. We didn't need proof. <laughs> Christ is the Son of Man, restoring our original dominion over creation. But wait, there's more. <laughs> because now we have to understand what we do with this. That's the hard thing about some prophecies. Like, okay, it's nice, That's about then, but what do we do with this? Well, the nice thing is that some of this has already happened. And we're, we're in this massive gray zone. Remember last week, the gray zone is the overlap of two eras. We're in this gray zone where the beasts are still kind of gnawing on things, but their power stripped. But where the kingdom of God has been received by Christ, but not yet given to us. So we're in this overlap period. And we need to learn how to navigate this period. So how do we do that? We, how do we survive Babylon while we await the coming of the kingdom of God? How do we do that? We do that by ascending with Christ and sitting with him on his throne. I know, right? That is a bold statement, but it's the statement the New Testament makes. So here's how it says it. Ephesians 2 verse 6. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You know what Ephesians is saying there? As Christ ascended... We, too, have a throne with him. Whoa. So we are to ascend. Now, here's how Colossians says it. Colossians says it in more of an applicational way. Colossians 3, verse 1. If you have been raised with Christ, and if you're a Christian, you have, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So you are to seek those things. We are to ascend in our hearts and minds by lifting our desires and longings for that position of ruling with Christ over his kingdom. Then Colossians continues, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Stop being fixated with Babylon and start lifting your eyes to the son of man seated at the right hand of the ancient of days. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, when he does deliver the kingdom to the saints, then you also will appear with him in glory. You will be crowned. We, in other words, the New Testament is saying that we are the princes and princesses of the kingdom of God. This is why C.S. Lewis, in his essay... Uh, The weight of glory says that if we just understood the promises, no, the unblushing promises of the New Testament, we wouldn't go around making mud pies in the slum. Well, he actually then says fooling around drinking sex and all those things, but same thing, mud pies. That's where we are. So what we do right now then in this time of waiting is we must be marked. By practicing our royalty. We practice our royalty. What what does that mean? Well, here's here's how we can practice our... This is how we can practice the kingdom of God in the midst of Babylon. I'll close with these four ways we can do this. Practice our royalty. First, battle against sin. Battle against sin. That's where your dominion lies primarily. Romans 12 says this. I'm sorry, Romans 6, verse 12. Let not sin reign. Let not sin be a king. Let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as you would present yourself to a king's use. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God, present your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. So battle against sin. And this happens by the work of the spirit's grace in our lives. Battle against sin. This is how you become a prince and a princess in the kingdom of God. Those who are conquered by sin will be just that in the end. But those who conquer sin, they will demonstrate the rulership muscles that the kingdom of God uh, is made of. Second, live by faith. Now that doesn't mean live by blind trust in God. That is part of faith, but that's not what I mean here. Uh, faith is not so much a belief in a set of facts, but, but faith is loyalty. It's faithfulness. It's allegiance to your king. Mm-hmm. Live by faith means know who your king is and don't betray him. Don't bow down to other kings as well. Um, we can do this, um, ways we can strengthen our loyalty. And these are just simple things I want to throw out there. that are super practical because we do them. Um, one is, is creeds. The creeds are wonderful statements of allegiance to our belief and our allegiance in Christ. Like, as an American, I was raised saying, pledging allegiance to the flag. Yeah, we all probably know that. Um, I don't know any Christian Americans who don't know how to pledge allegiance to the flag, but I know a ton of Christians who don't know even half of a creed. We raise ourselves to be good Americans, and that's fine. That's not a sin at all. We raise ourselves to be good Americans, but we forget how to be good citizens of the kingdom of God. Creeds can counteract that. So if you don't, you know, there's the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. These are great, rich theological creeds, but they're not, you know, they're they were created by humans. If you would rather stick with scripture, you got great ones. We do one, um we've been doing first Timothy 3:16 lately. Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, seen among angels, so forth. Uh but creeds strengthen our faithfulness. Just like the Pledge of Allegiance is meant to strengthen our allegiance to America. But also, um, calendars. Um, For almost... A little more than two years, our church has been following the traditional Christian calendar. So you'll notice that we've talked about it's Pentecost and it's Lent and it's Advent and it's Easter and it's so whatever day. Um, Now some of you like not used to that, and some of us think like, oh, that's super Catholic. It's not really Catholic; it's just old Christian stuff. Um, But the reason we do that is because we're used to orienting around ourselves around the Babylonian calendar. It's a president's birthday. We know our president's days, but we don't know we don't know our heroes of the faith days. Um, the Christian calendar is meant to orient us around the life cycle of Christ starting with his incarnation at Advent, his crucifixion at Lent and Holy Week, his resurrection at Easter and his ascension really it's like Pentecost and on the season we're in, his ascension because the spirit has come down we're used to orienting ourselves around his story and his kingdom it's a great way to counterbalance our identity as civil calendar keepers both are fine but it's a way to balance ourselves. So that's that's one of the ways that we can live by faith. Um, but the third way to live, to practice our rule, is keep gathering in weekly worship. Keep gathering in weekly worship. Don't give up on it. Don't think it's nothing. Um, because every time we gather on Sunday, we are declaring that the Son of God was raised from the dead that's what we declare that's why we worship on sunday and as we declare that we are associating ourselves with daniel's vision that through the resurrection and ascension of christ he has defeated the beasts of the world the empires are no longer in control of this world and we don't have to orient ourselves to them what we do when we gather every sunday is we are having a rally to strengthen the troops to continue to resist babylon that's what we're doing. We are cont- we are helping to lift up the weary hands and the weak knees of the revolutionaries so that we can continue to, co- to resist Babylon in our lives. And we need the strength of worship together to keep going. And fourth, pray the Lord's Prayer. Pray the Lord's Prayer. Because it prays your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The Lord's Prayer is an orientation of our hearts to the kingdom of God and not to the kingdoms of man. That's what I've noticed as I pray it day in and day out is that it is a prayer that causes me to look to him to solve things, to him to bring the kingdom. And if you think about it, the Lord's prayer cannot be completely fulfilled without the coming of the kingdom. You can't have daily bread in Babylon. You can't have... Um, uh, forgive. Uh, yeah, you can't have forgiveness in Babylon. You can't have deliverance from evil in Babylon. These are things that be completely fulfilled when Christ returns. And so the Lord's prayer keeps us yearning. It's an antidote against our desires for the kingdom of Babylon. All that to say, brothers and sisters, that the ascension of Christ has conquered Babylon. We survive Babylon by ascending with Christ, by knowing our true identity and our place and practicing the kingdom here.